From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Russia this week has further escalated its aggressive stance in the Ukraine war, with President Putin announcing a partial military mobilisation, conscripting Russians with military experience. He's also made fresh threats to deploy nuclear weapons. And in another development, votes are being held in four Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine on the question of joining Russia. Meanwhile, Ukraine's President Zelensky has addressed the United Nations, declaring Russia must be punished for its crimes. Australia has been a major contributor of military aid to Ukraine, and Anthony Albanese visited the country on his European trip. Ukraine is now looking for more military equipment from us. Vassal Moroshnichenko is Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, and he joins us today to talk about the progress in the war, what more Australia can do, and how the Ukrainians who've come here this year are faring. Ambassador, can we start with you giving us an assessment of where the conflict is now up to and how your government sees this week's actions and threats by President Putin? As of uh, several 10 days, uh, Ukrainian forces have been able to liberate big parts of land in eastern Ukraine, in the Kharkiv region. We have actually evicted Russians from the territory of 8,000 square kilometres and our counteroffensive was uh, quite successful, which is, of course, very inspirational and motivational to us. Uh, we've seen uh, Bushmasters in action out there as saving lives and helping Ukraine free the land from the Russians. And uh, so we, we feel it's now quite uplifting, and Ukraine will be reclaiming more territory in the south and throughout the whole front line. I don't have the details of what's next, but it's coming. And, of course... Um, Yesterday, Vladimir Putin has announced the partial mobilization of the troops within Russia. Uh, he needs to rotate people who are out there holding the ground in Ukraine. And the armed forces of Russia have had a hard time recruiting people for the job. And he's also made, of course, again, threats about nuclear weapons. How seriously do you think that European countries in particular will take that threat? We have to hold the line, and it's very important because when bully is bullying, there is a level when the bully becomes desperate, and I think that's where we are. It's at that point that uh, Vladimir Putin is now desperate. He is making nuclear threats. He is uh, trying to mobilize more people in Russia, and uh, and I think it's crucial to to stay firm, to stay strong with Ukraine, to supply weapons to Ukraine, and, and just hold it, uh, be strong. How realistic is the prospect of liberating all of Ukraine's territory? And what about Crimea, which has been under uh, Russian control in Russian hands for some years? 90% of Ukrainian people believe we're going to win this war, and um, it's universal, and it's reflected in in the leadership of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, who is adamant that we have to free the land from the Russians, and we believe we can liberate entire Ukraine, including Crimea, and because this is Ukrainian land. So we are pretty confident we can do it. 
In practical terms, can this war go on indefinitely until Ukraine uh, achieves its objectives, if it can do that, or will there have to be some sort of settlement in the relatively near future? It's important that we restore sovereignty uh, completely and entirely, because uh, when the Russians started the war eight years ago, they've occupied certain territories, including Crimea, and eight years later, they mounted another major attack on Ukraine. So we can't allow the Russians to occupy any territory in, in Ukraine for them just to regroup and resupply the troops and mount another attack. So we need to free the land. And then we, of course, as any war, it ends with diplomacy. So we'll have to sit down and come to some sort of arrangement with the Russians and also to get all the security guarantees from our friends and allies to make sure that Russians cannot invade us again in the future. Are we talking here months or years even? Michelle, it's difficult to say because nobody can make any prediction and I will not be one of those making those predictions. You know, Russian regime can crumble very quickly and it can just evaporate or this war can be protracted and can last much longer. Uh, it's difficult to really provide any fair assessment or, or gauge what's going to happen next. What I know for sure that Ukrainians have seen it all. For us, you know, it's probably going to get worse before it's going to get better. But I think everybody is prepared for that. And morale seems to have held up remarkably, really, uh, among the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. And actually, several hours ago, there was announced a big swap of prisoners of war. We have exchanged a Ukrainian traitor, Viktor Medvedchuk, who was a politician in Ukraine, and he was an agent of the Kremlin uh, for all his life. And uh, he was swapped for 200 prisoners of war, Ukrainian soldiers, many of them from Azov Steel Mill, who were swapped for Viktor Medvedchuk. And that's a major achievement that we've been able to achieve it through the moderation of uh, Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey. So he was involved in that, in negotiating with the Russians. The swap, it really worked. And also Saudi Arabia negotiated a swap for some of the British and American soldiers who were volunteers fighting for Ukraine. And they've been now sent to Er Riyadh to be further released, to go back to their own, own countries. When you mention those countries, we're reminded that this conflict has uh, involved some strange bedfellows on the margins. Yes, I mean, because it's, it's never really black and white. There are many nuances out there. Well, what is black and white is, of course, Russian aggression of Ukraine is black and white. We have an evil country invading a democracy. But uh, everything which is happening in the region, in the Middle East, and, uh, and just overall, the way this war is playing out in Central Asia as well, uh, there are many different nuances. And um, these nuances are very important, and they are very important in international relations. And, and of course... Um, the interests of Turkey in the Black Sea region and in the Middle East uh, overall. And this is what we see Turkey is doing. It continues cooperating with Russia in terms of trading with Russia, but it sells um, weapons to Ukraine. But I think Recep Erdogan has made a clear statement that Crimea is Ukraine. So Turkey is recognizing Crimea as Ukraine. And I think he, there was some sort of statement that he made on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly the other day. So we, which actually tells you a lot about the interests of, of Turkey in the Black Sea region. Now, ballots are getting underway or about to get underway in several parts of Ukraine that Russia controls. And they're on the question of these parts joining Russia. These ballots have been condemned as a sham. But how do you see this playing out? What will happen if... Um, Presumably, the, the people vote for alliance with Russia. 
We've seen it in 2014, so this is not new. Russians stage a sham referendum. They collect some ballots, uh, then they announce the annexation of the territory to Russia. And then they claim that actually any attempt to reclaim the territory is an assault on, on the Russian sovereign territory. But that's just one of those playbooks they're following. And nobody has recognized ever Crimea to be part of Russia. And uh, that's a gross violation of, of international law and, and of the UN Charter. So according to the UN Charter, it's all Ukrainian territory, which we have the legitimate right to reclaim and to evict the Russians. Let's now turn to Australia's action. Are you disappointed that Australia is not banning Russian tourists? I'm I'm not disappointed. Uh, I had to raise this issue because uh, that's a campaign of Ukraine in the EU and also in other countries, banning Russian tourists. Because as part of the support for Ukraine, countries have been imposing sanctions on Russia, on the Russian economy, taking some banks out of uh, SWIFT, divesting from Russia, banning a supply of certain products like Australia has banned the export of alumina to Russia or the banning the import of oil and gas and coal from Russia as well. So this sanctions on the tourists is just part of this whole strategy. Of course, it's more important for the EU Schengen countries where uh, Russians are in big numbers. There are not many Russians coming here. And of course, uh, look, I'm not disappointed. I, I just had to also voice it because I think it's up to the Russian people to decide what they're going to do with Vladimir Putin because uh, the damage that he's done to the reputation of the country, to the people. There are some decent people in Russia, uh, however, who are now suffering, whose kids get killed in Ukraine. But they have to be more vocal. Russians have to stand up and take down the tyrant. And that's up to them to do it and to encourage them. I think the banning of tourists uh, coming to different countries, to the U.S., to Britain, to the Schengen countries, this should be uh, an incentive for the Russians to finally understand that they have turned into a pariah state and all Russians are toxic. They're not welcome anywhere. And this should encourage them to take down Vladimir Putin much sooner in order to get back to normal life. So it's only done with the will of that motivation that uh, Russians have. It's their job to stop the war. And they've elected Vladimir Putin. Now they have to take him down. And of course, uh, that's difficult because if you look at the numbers, and there was a recent survey, about 81% of the Russian people support this war. And uh, of course, some may argue that this is not an accurate number. But look, if 2 million people flooded the streets of St. Petersburg and Moscow, Putin could not be able to quell that uprising because when you reach these numbers, police has no ability to shut it up. Of course, if you have several thousand people in the streets, it's easy to break down on them, put them in jails. But if we are talking about millions, they can't do much. Australia hasn't reopened its embassy in Kyiv because of security considerations. Should it do so as soon as possible? And what would be the importance of doing so? Is it mainly symbolism or would it be a useful contact point for people who have relatives in Australia? Look, I'm in touch with Bruce Edwards, the Australian ambassador to Ukraine on a regular basis. Uh, he's been stationed in Poland since the outbreak of the war. We traveled together to Ukraine in early July during the visit of Prime Minister Antony Albanese. And at that time, everybody was asking, when, when is the embassy coming back? Because uh, by now, 60 different countries have sent their embassies and ambassadors back to Kyiv. And I think it's important for Australia to go back because if Bruce Edwards is on the ground, he's capable of meeting people there 
and interacting with the Ministry of Defense, with Ministry of Foreign Affairs, with other stakeholders in Ukraine to provide a better feedback to, to Canberra and provide his analysis of the situation being on the ground. So it's, it's so important for Australia to have its people there who have access and, and who can loop back and send their information to, to the headquarters. So this should be reopened ASAP? That's my guess, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Now, Ukraine has called on Australia for another 30 Bushmasters, as well as other military hardware. The extra Bushmasters would potentially bring the total commitment to 90. Senator Wong, uh, who's at the UN at the moment, said that we are considering this. How hopeful are you of getting the additional equipment and how have the Bushmasters performed so far? Bushmasters become a symbol of Australian military support for Ukraine. And now if, if you, when you come to Kiev and you hop in a taxi and the taxi driver is going to ask you where you're from, and you will say you're Australian. So most likely he's going to say Bushmaster because it's, it's now all over. It's, it's become a symbol. We've seen Bushmasters liberating the regions of Kharkiv. Uh, it's kind of a very strong brand name currently, strongly associated with, uh, with Australia just like kangaroos and koalas are, it's now a bushmaster, uh, which is kind of an interesting development in terms of how uh, Australia could be perceived in different countries. But this is the perception Australia has in Ukraine. And of course, Ukrainian people are extremely thankful for that support. And uh, so far, 40 bushmasters have been delivered. Another 20 are still on their way. I hope they could be delivered as soon as possible. Indeed, we made a request for another 30. And uh, I've also made a request for Hawkeyes, which is uh, kind of a more smaller uh, vehicles, brand new, uh, which are still in a testing mode. Uh, but I've made a request. Uh, they are all important. But what is more important also, Michelle, is actually artillery. We need 777 howitzers, and these are the artillery guns. And Australia provided six of those in May. We need another 12, and we need 155 millimeter ammunition for, those, uh, for that artillery. Because at this stage of war, we need this artillery as soon as possible to be able to free the land. And of course, Bushmasters go really well in a, in a bundle because our airborne troops have been using those Bushmasters to actually raid and attack the Russian troops on the ground. And often, I think they've even been using them as infantry fighting vehicles, which they are not. They are mostly used for the transport of the personnel. But if you don't have anything else, uh, Bushmaster is still better than just driving a truck. So do you have any idea when you might get a decision on the Bushmasters? Is there a reason for a delay? Look, I think for, for any new batch of military assistance for Ukraine, uh, Cabinet has to vote on this. Um, so you may want to reach out to the ministers who are part of the Cabinet. I understand the agenda for the next Cabinet meeting will be defined early next week. It might be next week. It might be a bit later. I don't really know the details of of how it's done and, and, and what could be done. But um, perhaps the uh, Department of Defense has more information on this. The last batch of assistance was announced on the 3rd of July. Today is 22nd of uh, September. Uh, so it's soon going to be three months uh, since the last time that the support was announced for Ukraine. And look, we need more because the reason we need more is just because as you see how cruel this war is, how many, many casualties, how many people get killed, and our friends and allies, including Australia, uh, have been out there standing strong with us. And so we, we just need to finish the job. And to finish the job, uh, we do need the right weapons to do it. 
You've raised the question of whether Ukraine could get the land in Canberra that was leased to Russia for a new embassy. It was leased some years ago, and now it's been uh, forfeited because the conditions of the lease weren't met. And you see this site as potentially one that would be good for the Ukrainian embassy. What's been the response to this? Indeed, I, I, I was talking to the media about my interest, uh, but more importantly, earlier this week, I have submitted a formal application, which I've sent to the National Capital Authority and as well as a copy to uh, Senator Penny Wong with a request to transfer that plot of land to Ukraine so that we could build an embassy. So the request is out there. Um, it's been formally filed, and um, I think it's important to seek the, the feedback from National Capital Authority and DFAT uh, on this particular question. Look, uh, when I arrived here at the end of March, I, you know, Ukrainian embassy is currently renting an office in the in CBD Canberra uh, at Marcus Clark Street, and um, and I had a dream, and I still I have a dream. I have a dream to build an embassy and a residence uh, while I'm still here in Australia during the next four years. Uh, Ukrainian community has already raised money in the early 90s, like half a million dollars, which could be initially allocated for the designs of that of of the of the embassy and the residence. And there are many others who I met who, who are willing and interested in chipping in. And actually, we can complete the embassy. And, you know, this embassy is just more than just uh, steel and concrete. I think this embassy will be a symbol that the bilateral relations that currently exist between Ukraine and Australia will be there out in perpetuity. Because when you have a separate building and a, and a residence, uh, it's a commitment. It's a long-term commitment. And I really want to make the contribution, and that's my dream, and I hope uh, it will transpire. Well, of course, uh, the number of Ukrainians in Australia has uh, increased in the months of the war. How many people have come to Australia this year, and how are these people getting on? Because they're, of course, separated from their families. They're under a lot of stress, often with relatives uh, fighting in the war. Do you think most of them will return to Ukraine, or does some want to settle here permanently? Look, I've seen some of the statistics done by um, scholars who study migrations globally, and they I saw a number which said that during crises like this, during wars, about 30% migrants or refugees, they stay, another 70% go back. In, in case of Ukraine, I think uh, we're going to get even better numbers. We're going to get 20-80% number, where 20% will probably try to stay or will stay and 80% will go back. The reason why I think so is that a lot, a lot of those people who left Ukraine, and we have 5 million refugees, uh, they haven't left Ukraine because they wanted to leave. They just had no other choice. Uh, labor migrants who left Ukraine back 20 years ago, they went to Europe primarily, and those were people looking for a better life in the EU, and they are already there. Those people who left now, they were forced to leave because Russians started bombing their cities, their houses, these are mostly women with kids, you know, suffering, some elderly people as well. Uh, and um, in terms of Australia, 1,800 visas have been issued, about 1,500 people have arrived, over 1,500 people uh, have arrived here in Australia. There was a program which was available to them, which included and entailed some benefits which were provided to the Ukrainian refugees. That program was launched by the previous government. It expired at the end of July. Unfortunately, the new government has not come up with a new scheme. Uh, that would be equivalent to the one that was available to that first batch of Ukrainians who came here. 
I hope that... What did that involve? Well, it involved actually uh, financial assistance, I think, which I, I might I might get wrong it was the numbers. I think every person could get and qualify for like $1,200 per month in financial assistance before he or she can find a job. And once that person finds a job, this program ends. But that, that financial assistance was very important, especially important for people who don't speak the language, who can't find a job or who are elderly people. So they get a little bit of money, uh, which they can use for rent and for any kind of, you know, some small, small expenditure. And actually, I have an example. It's, it's of a friend's family, herself and her mother. They came over to, to Australia back in April, fleeing the war. And uh, this assistance allowed them to sort of settle briefly in Canberra. Uh, and then the daughter uh, later on found a job in Sydney. So she moved with her mother to Sydney. Since she got a job, the program has ended because now she's making money. And she works in the IT industry, so she's been uh, pretty quick at finding the job. But her mother continues receiving some of that assistance, which is also important for somebody who is retired and not to be dependent on her daughter, though they still live together. But it just getting that assistance is a great help to her. So this is just only one of the examples. But, you know, there are many people who, who are coming here, like a mother with two kids and the kids are very little. So the mother cannot work because she needs to take care of the kids. Kids don't speak English. They need to adapt to school. So she cannot really give up everything and, and just go and work. So that financial assistance is crucial for her to be able to adjust a bit before they grow up. And then she may be able to, to, to find a job and, and start making money. But now this, this is not available. There is only a refugee program which is available uh, to all other refugees, which have been available before. It's much more difficult to get it. Uh, from a legal standpoint of view, it's much more complicated. But I understand the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organizations, the Ukrainian community, is, nego is in negotiations with the Home Office. From what I hear, there is not much progress. Uh, I don't understand it, to be frank. But this is, this, is, this is some of the signals I've been hearing that it's too slow. But I guess, look, uh, immigration policy is a sovereign policy of any country. So, of course, it's up to the Australian government to decide how they handle it. Uh, I understand the new Labour government is, is revisiting the entire immigration policy and perhaps it's just taking them more time to figure out what to do with the Ukrainians. So are Ukrainians still coming? Are refugees from the war still arriving or aren't we getting any more? Oh, they, they, are, they are arriving because a lot of... So as I said, uh, 80, 100 visas have been issued, but only 50, 100 people arrived. So there are still more people coming. But I think a lot of that has been also contingent on that financial support because if, for instance, it's no longer available, the numbers will go down. And it's not that the war is over and it's not that the people don't, are not seeking for asylum. They still need uh, the shelter here. The problem is uh, uh, there are other countries out there in Europe which, which offer better assistance and which are much closer to Ukraine. And it's, of course, a pity because I think uh, Australia would benefit from actually welcoming more Ukrainians. A lot of Ukrainians are very well educated. They are in, in the IT industry. They could really contribute to your diversity and could actually even help you with the labor shortage, which is everywhere. You know, I travel throughout Australia and I see the shortage in the airports, in the hotels, everywhere. This is really, and it's affecting the, the, the quality of services throughout the country. And so I'm sure that Australia could benefit from more labor on the market. Uh, of course, uh, there are the numbers of Ukrainians coming are still uh, small to have a major impact. But I think uh, they could definitely contribute to economic growth in Australia, especially now at the, at the times of the difficulties um, uh, that the economy is facing. So you would like to see another round of visas issued? 
Yes, absolutely. Look, the visas are still going to be issued. It's just uh, harder to get those, as, I'm, as I've explained. And also the scheme that was available to the uh, first group of refugees who came here before the end of July is no longer available to the newcomers. So their position is not as advantageous as those previous ones. So therefore, uh, I'm not sure how it's going to affect the numbers of people arriving. Uh, so it may have an impact on that for sure. Well, we'll see how those negotiations go. Ambassador, thank you very much for talking with us today and giving us a full account of the situation in your country and ways Australia can help. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.